appreciate my friend, Brother Traxel, so much, and uh, I love him, and I appreciate the work he's doing, and it's so good to be here with all of you, and I am certainly excited about, about having you at Bethlehem, and uh, I honor Brother Traxel's staff, all of his, his uh, executive staff. Thank you guys for what you do, uh, serving with excellence, and I certainly appreciate that, and all of the other speakers. Uh, I'm trying to go quick through this part because I got a lot to say in a little bit of time. Like that, I did a funeral one time of a truck driver that wasn't really in church and they rolled his body out so I've got a long way to go in a short time to get there. <laughs> and so I kind of feel like him today. But, um, but it's an honor to have him here. Brother Vickers, I want to say to you, I think I've, I've known you longer than anyone in this room besides my wife. I met you when I was evangelizing in 1991. And Brother Vickers has always been one of the classiest, kindest people that I've ever known. And I want you to know how much I appreciate you. And, uh, and Brother Snitzer, thank you for that. Um, I'll be honest with you, I, I tried my best to hire Brother Snitzer for a year, uh, and, just, uh, and, and I couldn't do it. But I'm not necessarily giving up on trying. So, um, but. But I want to say thank you before I get started on what I want to talk about. I want to say thank you to our church people um, that, are, that are working and, and are part of, of what we do on a regular basis. Um, it, is, it is impossible to grow a church without good people that love souls. And um, you're going to hear a lot of really powerful things you already have. Um, after I'm done, you're going to hear more tomorrow and tonight and all of that. Um, but the hardest thing, in my opinion, to do in growing a church is, is uh, acquiring the manpower that's willing to work. Um, you know, you've got a lot of people in your church, you don't have a whole lot willing to work. And so getting the ones that are willing to work are, uh, is, is the vital thing. And I want to talk to you for a little while. I'm starting my timer. I want to talk to you a little while on the essential quality of a disciple-making church. The, the essential quality, um, not qualities, quality of a disciple-making church. And I want to go to Genesis chapter number 7, and then we'll go, and I'm, I'm, I will go quick through, through this uh, and uh, hope for the best. How's that? Genesis 7, 1 through 3, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come. Thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female. Of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and the female. Now notice this phrase, to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. Of every clean beast that shall take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two. The principles of God are evident from the very beginning of creation. The Bible says in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And verse 2 says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. There are three descriptive phrases that describe the earth at this stage. Number one, without form. Number two, void. And number three, darkness. 
Without form means chaos, without order. Void means empty, and darkness is the absence of light. Those three, phase, those three uh, words describe everything that exists in the absence of God's presence. Wherever and whenever someone does not have God in their life, they are without form, they are void, and they are in darkness. There's chaos, emptiness, and darkness. Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4 and 4 referred to Satan as the God of this world. That does not mean deity like, of course, the God that we serve. Paul didn't use the capital G indicating that he was divine in any way or equal footing with Jehovah. Nonetheless, and, and this may be controversial to some, but we're not going to argue about it. Um, I don't care enough about it to argue with you. But um, nonetheless, it's my personal belief that at some point between Genesis 1 and 1 and Genesis 1 and 2 is when Satan fell. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God's not the author of confusion. Verse 2 has confusion and chaos. So it's my belief that at some point in between those two verses, again, I'm not going to cross theological swords with you on it, but that's just my personal belief. And that when Satan fell like lightning from heaven, it plunged creation into chaos, darkness, and emptiness. It was the entrance of Satan that corrupted creation, and he became the god or the ruler of the world. Everything that Satan touches goes into chaos, it empties it out of everything valuable, and it plunges it into darkness. But God was not content to give up on his creation. At the very beginning, he laid out a pattern to bring order to chaos, to fill the emptiness with his presence, and to bring light into darkness. Genesis 1 and 2, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Then the Bible says, and the Spirit of God moved. The number one, the the first thing that has to happen to bring order to chaos, light to darkness, and fill an empty void is the Spirit of God has to move. And then the Bible said, and God said. Two essential elements of change. The Spirit of God needs to move and the Word of God needs to speak into somebody's life. Every time I teach, I teach exploring God's Word in one of the another one of those long Bible studies. Um, and everyone that, every time I teach, my favorite chart in the whole thing is the creation chart. It starts out with emptiness, darkness, and void, and on the seventh day, everything's resting in God's presence. And I tell them, that can be your life. You'll, you might be empty, void, and chaotic right now, but I promise you that if you'll come and let the Spirit of God move and you'll let us speak the word into your life, God will by process order your entire life and the goal is eternal rest in heaven. It's my favorite chart. I'd, I'd probably use it in every sermon if I could get away with it. Nonetheless, so the Spirit of God moved and the Word of God spoke, and He still uses the same two things to bring order to life. And so step by step, God's Word was spoken. His creation responded. Um, every time, if you want an interesting Bible study, every time that God spoke something into existence, He ordered separation He created light, and then he divided it from the darkness. And every time that God begins to form somebody, he'll speak life, then he'll order separation, and if they'll respond to his call for separation, he'll take creation to another level. And so in Genesis 2 and 5, here's what the Bible said. The Bible said, Every plant of the field before it grew was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. Every plant, every herb was already in the earth, but none of it was growing. 
All the potential is there. All the life is in the soil, but it's not growing. Everything it ever needed, everything the world needed, everything man would need, everything every life form on this world would ever need was already in the earth, but it wasn't growing. It was in the soil, but it wasn't manifesting. There was a divine potential in the soil, but there was no divine harvest. One of the most frustrating things is when you know there's divine potential, but there's no divine harvest. Amen. And so let's go back to Genesis 2 and 5. Every plant of the field before it grew was in the earth. Every herb of the field before it grew. Now let's finish that verse. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the ground, upon the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. Two things were missing that were keeping the harvest. Number one, the rain. Number two, there was no man to till the ground. There was no rain and no man. Two things that could not happen for there to be a harvest. God could not send the rain because if he sends the rain, the life in the soil will grow. But if there's no man to tend to it, the harvest will be wasted and God's not into wasted harvest. So he's holding back the rain until he can get a man that's willing to work. Until he had a man that was willing to till the ground, he could not send the rain of revival. And without the rain, the seeds will never produce the harvest. So God will never send more rain than he has workers willing to take care of the harvest. So the entire hydrologic cycle, the entire agricultural cycles are on hold until God finds a man willing to work. And he'll send the amount of rain to give the amount of harvest that the man that is willing to work can handle. And so the only way to get more life from the soil is to get more rain from heaven. And the only way to get more rain from heaven is to get more men willing to work. Men or women, by the way. Let's, let's settle on that right now. Um, God has a mission. Let's look at Genesis 2 and 7. And the Lord, now, why, you say you're in a church growth conference. We're, we're in 2023. Why are we at the very beginning of everything? Because at the very beginning of everything, God set the harvest plan. He set the principles for life and growth in the very beginning. And everything from that point follows the same principle. Genesis 2 and 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. God formed man. Why did God form man? Because God needs to bring a harvest out of the earth. The life is in the soil. The life is in the earth. The seed is in the soil, but I can't let it grow. Speaking from God's perspective, I can't send the rain because it will grow. And if it grows, there's no man to till the ground. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to form man out of the dust of the earth. I'm going to bring him out of the very thing that has all that life and potential inside of it. And then I'm going to breathe into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. God had a mission. I need someone to till the ground because I, if I don't have a tiller, I can't send the rain. If I can't send the rain, I can't bring forth a harvest. And so God's reason for forming man was to work the field. The only reason he made man was because he has to bring harvest out of the field. That's good. And I got to make a man. So here's the point. I, 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 I noticed that the air kind of got sucked out of the room for a second there. Let, I'm not done yet, so just... <laughs> trying to keep up. 
God has a mission. The mission is till the ground, bring forth the harvest. And so God made man for a mission. God didn't make man and think, okay, now what am I going to do with him? I got to come up with a plan because I've got him here and I can't just leave, let him just wander around forever. And so God didn't make a mission for man. God made a man for a mission. Yeah. Yeah. God did not make a mission for his man. He made a man for his mission. God needed a tiller of the ground and a tender of the garden. So he made man to do his mission. The Bible said God formed man breathed into man and man became a living soul not an animal not a being but a soul when god looks at man he doesn't see your hair skin eyes body thank the lord those are only temporary but what god sees is the soul you are not a body with a soul you are a soul with a body god didn't make a soul for your body he made a body for your soul the most important part of you is your soul so God made a man for his mission. And Satan opposes the mission of God. So Satan opposes the man because of the mission. Satan tempted Adam and Eve. They fell. From this moment, the Bible became a book about the mission of God to restore mankind to fellowship with himself. Christopher J. Wright opens his book, The Mission of God, with this sentence. Mission is what the Bible is all about. So the Bible is a book about mission. God had a mission and made a man for his mission. You look through the scriptures and you see that God's mission is the purpose for man. Notice Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1, 4, and 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet to the nations. Before Jeremiah was even formed in the womb, God already had a mission for him. I need a prophet for the nations. And so I'm going to make Jeremiah for my ministry, not a ministry for my Jeremiah. He didn't say, well, Jeremiah is going to be born. I got to come up with an idea. What's he going to do? I got to get a plan for him. He said, nope, I've got a plan. Now I need to make Jeremiah for my mission, not a mission for my Jeremiah. God had a mission in mind. I need a prophet to the nations. I need somebody that will speak to the nations. I need someone that, that even if they're shut up in the court of the prison, I can speak to him. And so he made Jeremiah specifically for a purpose. Amen. Let's look at a New Testament passage. John 9, 1 and 2. And Jesus passed by. He saw a man which was blind from his birth and his disciples. Now, you're getting ready to hear the dumbest question that's ever been asked in the history of the world. You think you've heard some dumb questions? Get ready for this one. His disciples asked him, Master, who did sin? This man or his parents? That he was born blind. All right, let's think about that. Okay. The man was born blind. Did he sin before he was born that caused him to be blind? I mean, think of the stupidity of that question. And these are the 12 best he could find. 
That's the bad part about it. Okay, did he, who, did he sin before he was born? In the womb, somehow, sin. That his mother, or that, that, that he was born blind. Did he somehow sin before? He, come on, guys, you got to do better than that. But that's the question they asked. Did he sin, and that's why he's blind? Or maybe his mom and dad, maybe his mother and dad sinned, and God decided to judge the child for his parents' sin. I know what I would have said if I was Jesus, but I'm not. So he answered them. Nine and three, Jesus answered, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents. Here's the next part, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. The man was born blind so that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Years before these disciples asked the question, God let there be something in this baby's DNA that would cause his eyes to not be formed properly in the womb. I didn't know I was going to have a, a recovering blind man, a, like a, 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 a blind man that's... So why did... So, so why... You said 16 years ago it started happening? That, 15, 16 years ago. So why did that start happening 15 or 16 years ago? It might have been that 4 million people could see a miracle. Amen. But that the works of God should be made manifest. Now, uh, this is, I'm, I'm going to get off script a little bit, but you, yeah. you know the, the Acts 3, the great, the Peter and John go walking up to the temple at the hour of prayer, and there's a man, and he's, he's been there 38 years, and he's laid daily at the gate of the temple, and, yeah. and he's, this has been going on forever, and, and he looks up at Jesus, or he looks up at Paul, uh, Peter and John, and he says, uh, he, he asked for alms, and they said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I unto thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he, leaping up, stood, leaping and praising God. The next chapter, you find him at Solomon's porch within the temple grounds. And, and the crowds have gathered. And they know this is the guy that he's been for 38 years. This guy's been begging money for me. For 38 years, I've had to walk up and pass him. Now, now the, obviously, he, he was at the gate of the temple. Now he's at Solomon's porch inside because now he can go in because he's healed. He's not crippled anymore. So he's allowed to go in. And, and he's praising God. And the Bible says 5,000 believed. Because they saw the miracle. Why did God do the miracle? It wasn't for the man. The man, 38 years, been sick, been laying there at the temple, crippled. He didn't do it for the man. Because if he was going to do it for the man, Jesus would have done it when he went to the temple to pray. Because Jesus walked by him every time he went through that gate. What about all those days the disciples went by that nothing ever happened? If Jesus... now. If Jesus would have healed this man when he was before he was before the, Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected, there would have been no apostle Peter to preach, repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so he pauses the man's miracle. Absolutely. So that when the man does get healed, and there's five thousand people that want to know about it. There's somebody there to preach to them about the Holy Ghost in Jesus' name. So the miracle was not for the man. The miracle was for the mission. Amen. Amen. I, gotta, I still got to go fast. I still have a long way to go. 
So this man, back to John chapter number 9, the man is born blind that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Now let me just go ahead and hit a pause here. And let me say that I think we would see a lot more miracles if the miracles were for the mission instead of the man. We want pe people come, they want healing. What if we made it a point that every time somebody got healed, delivered, everybody got, got their, their, their sight back or got their, their healing of diabetes or whatever it was, we would make it about the mission and not about the moment. Then we would see a lot more miracles because I believe miracles are missional. God works miracles not for the man but for the mission. He does it so that his works can be made manifest. Amen. The Bible said that one of the signs that the Messiah had come was that the eyes of the blind would see. Yeah. And so this man in John chapter 9 is the first time the Bible ever records from Genesis all the way through about a blind man seeing. This man was born blind so that that man could be an example of why Jesus is the Messiah. Yeah. And so it was all about the mission. It was all about the purpose of God. Amen. I'm preaching to the choir here. So decades earlier, God had a mission. Let's make the works of God manifested so they'll believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he made a man blind from birth so that when Jesus walked by, Jesus could heal him so everybody would know the Messiah has come. It was all about the mission. God did not start a church in Bethlehem. And talking about this Bethlehem, not the one far away, this one, the one you're in now. God didn't start a church in Bethlehem and then think, well, if I'm going to have a church, I've got to think of something for them to do. So what happened is God had a mission, so he made a church for the mission. Let me extrapolate it just a little bit further. God had a mission to reach this area, so he made this church for this area. This church has a, has a mission to make disciples. The reason that our church is here is to be part of the mission. If this church is not about the mission, then God doesn't need this church. If the member is not about the mission, then God doesn't need the member. Because God is about mission. And you were made for the mission. That means you and I don't have the right to not be involved in disciple making. We do not have the option to decide if we don't want to work for the mission. Because I was made for the mission, the mission wasn't made for me. It's not like I go to the buffet and decide, well, I want to do this, but I don't want to do that. And I don't want to do this, and I don't want to do that. And I want this, but I don't want that. I was made for a mission. And if I'm not about the mission, then there's no purpose for me to be here. I don't have the option to decide if I don't want to work for the mission. Let's look at the passage that further addresses this point. 1 Timothy 1, 6 through 9. I'm sorry. 2 Timothy, I'm sorry. 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 1 and 6. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. We like to preach this verse. We get excited about it. We like to get people shouting about it. We need to stir up the gift of the Holy Ghost inside of us. All right, well, why? Verse 7, for God has not given us the spirit of fear. We like to preach that one too, don't we? But a power and of love and of a sound mind. And we, we quote this verse when we're apprehensive, anxious, fearful, uncertain. But why did God do that? Why did he give me the gift by the laying on of hands? And why did he 
do away with the spirit of fear and give me a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. Why did he do that? Are there any responsibilities connected to these two blessings, these two verses? What's the result? What do I owe God for giving me, a, giving me what he did? Well, let's look a little bit further. Verse number nine. Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Yeah. Now, we, we like those first couple of verses, don't we? Preachers, can you say amen? We like amen. to preach, stir up the gift that's within amen. you. And anybody that's not worshiping, we like to use that and kind of kick them, you know, jump start them, jumper cables, stir up the gift, you know, get, get moving, get going. Then we, and then when we have people that are dealing with stress and anxiety and fear, we like to use that other verse. He's not giving us a spirit of fear, power, love, sound mind. We like all that. We, we, you know, we, that's spiritual CPR. But verse 9 said he saved us and called us. The holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Now, we all know we've been saved by grace, right? Yeah, right. We all know that. We all know we needed grace. Without grace, we couldn't be saved. We needed God. God felt so sorry for us. He looked down the gutter, saw how messed up we were. And because of his grace, he picked us up because he felt sorry for us. Well, this verse says that's not really only the case. It wasn't only because of grace. It was because of his purpose and grace. God gave me grace because he had a purpose for me. He had a mission for me. It wasn't only because he felt sorry for me. Brother Drain, I, I just met you. Thank you for giving your testimony here Wednesday night. I've spoken less than 50 words to you. I don't know you from the man on the moon hardly. But I will tell you that God didn't get you baptized in Jesus' name and heal your blindness because he felt sorry for you. It's because he has purpose for you. It's purpose and grace. And if all I do is enjoy the grace, but I don't align with the purpose, I'm not giving God back what, I, what he gave me. Thank God for grace. Thank God for grace. But if all I do is enjoy grace and I don't get aligned with purpose, and I'm not giving God what he deserves for giving me the grace. Amen? According to his own purpose. Y'all still with me? Okay, am I all right? I hope I'm not, not uh, messing up anybody's theology too much today. According to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus. Now look at the last four words. Before the world began. Before there was a world, God had a purpose. Before there were rivers, trees, mountains, rocks, birds, grass, fish, whales, dogs, cats, mice, rats. I didn't even know I was going to rhyme. I got I to think of another Bats. <laughs> Floor mats. <laughs> Before any of that, God's purpose pre-existed at all. Yeah, good. Yeah. Is that what it said? Before the world began? He saved us. He called us. Why did he do it? Not according to our works, but because of his purpose and grace. Mission 
is not the job of the church, but an attribute of God that is a driving characteristic of his church. He saved us because of his purpose, because he had a mission. My dad, my dad is Puerto Rican. His grandparents moved, or great-grandparents moved to Puerto Rico, bought a piece of land in the interior of the island, started growing coffee and bananas and avocados, and that's how they made their living. My grandfather was wealthy. My grandfather wasted all of his money on women and gambling. My dad's the youngest of 14 of his brothers and sisters between his father and his mother. He has other siblings on his father's side. My, 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 uh, my grandfather left the home, left his, his wife and all those kids to make it on their own. My dad is the youngest of 14. His oldest brother's name is Juan. Um, my dad's name is Juan. They had so many kids, they ran out of names. They recycled. <laughs> I tell, told my kids that two are better than one. <laughs> yeah. The grandfather of dad jokes is what they call me. My dad's, the absence of my grandfather in my dad's life led my dad down a lot of difficult paths. He was, my dad's brilliant. He has the only perfect score that we know of in the history of Indiana University physics final. Uh, my dad brilliant, speaks eight or ten languages, uh, has no common sense, but don't tell him I said that. Um, but it led him down a path of alcoholism. Uh, he came back from the army. He couldn't, because my grandfather had wasted all their substance on riotous living. Uh, my dad joined the army to get the GI Bill, uh, became an alcoholic, got kicked out of the army for... Uh, for asthma and alcoholism, two A's that you can't be a good soldier in Vietnam with. Um, he's listless, brilliant, but no direction. So his, his, one of his older brothers had gotten a job at a steel mill, steel mill in Kokomo, Indiana. And so to get him away from his friends and hope he'd get a fresh start, they ship him to Indiana. Um, he's walking in an A&P grocery store and some little bald guy with a very bad Spanish accent, starts talking to him. Turns out that that's Brother Matthew Ball's grandfather. It's the only Spanish-speaking American my dad met. And he starts witnessing to him. My dad gets the Holy Ghost, gets baptized, marries my mom, gets called to the ministry. Um, my wife's, my, I'm not gonna, I gotta hurry. My wife's, uh, my wife, I married her in the church that my dad got saved in, my mom and dad got saved in. Um, I was visiting with my wife's grandfather. He was dying in uh, the hospital in Indianapolis. We go to, to visit him. And when my wife's family became Pentecostal, her Catholic grandparents completely cut him off. Wouldn't deal with them, wouldn't talk to them. The first time they ever came to a family thing with my wife and I's marriage. Um, so I go up to the hospital here. We try to mend those fences. We go to the hospital, and, and uh, he says, so, so who's your family? And I said, well, my mom was a Bagley. He said, Bagley? Do you know Jim Bagley? I said, yeah, well, that was my uncle. And he let out a couple of cuss words. He said, oh, me, I didn't know. He said, I, he said, I was in a foxhole in the Philippines. He said, and we were being overrun by the Japanese. 
And the only way we were going to survive is if somebody stayed in the foxhole and fired the gun while we got away. He said, and Jim Bagley volunteered to stay in the foxhole so that we could get away. He said, we got out that night. He said, and when they fought back, we got reinforcements and we fought back. And, and the next day, we found his body. He was shot all to and then he let out another expletive. He lost his eye. Shrapnel took his eye out. And they said, we thought he was dead, but he survived. He said, I wouldn't be here right now if it wasn't for your Uncle Jim. So my Uncle Jim, who, as far as I know, died lost, stayed in a foxhole to preserve the life of a man that would go back to Indiana, have a daughter, who would then have a daughter that I could marry, and we could work for him. In 1944, God had a mission, a purpose. The Bible said that it's from the beginning of the world. Mission is not the job of the church. It's the attribute of God. That if we're not involved in it, we don't deserve to be here as a church. If a church becomes about the people inside and not about the mission, that church doesn't belong there. Because mission predates the church. God didn't let us all get the Holy Ghost and say, now what am I going to do with them? He has a mission, and so he pulls you out of sin and pulls you out of the world and pulls you out because you've got a mission. And that's the only reason that he pulled you out. He did it. Because of mission. Right. Let me go a little bit further. I'm, i got to quit soon. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Jesus, why do you have all power? Not just in earth, but in heaven and earth. Why do you have all power? Why did God send you here with all this power? Matthew 28, 19, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That word teach in the Greek means to disciple. Go ye therefore and make disciples. The ASV says go ye therefore and make disciples. The Bible in basic English says go then and make disciples. The Darby translation, go therefore and make disciples. The ESV, go therefore and make disciples. The Net Bible, therefore go make disciples. The NIV, therefore go and make disciples. The, in, the New King James, go make disciples. The NLT, therefore go make disciples. The revised, revised, revised version, go ye therefore and make disciples. The mission is to make disciples. Yeah. How do we do that? Teaching them to observe all things and whatsoever I commanded you and lo, I am with you all way, even to the end of the world. Amen. Teaching them to observe what Jesus commanded. Discipleship includes baptizing and teaching. He starts by saying, I have all power in heaven and earth. And he ends it by saying, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. But in the middle, he has a mission. Go make disciples. His power is for the mission. And if we'll do the job of disciple making, he says, I'm with you always. He'll be with you for his purpose. 
but he does not guarantee to be with you just to ride a cruise ship to heaven. I'll be with you always if you're about my mission. If you're about making disciples, I'll be with you always. If you'll stay on point and not make it only about the people already in, I'll be with you always. If you'll reach for the drug addict, the abused, the broken, whether they're poor or rich, if you'll be about my mission, I'll be with you always. When you have church trouble, I'll still be with you if you'll stay on mission. When you have opposition, I'll be with you if you're about my mission. When you have a pandemic, I'll still be with you if you'll be about my mission. I'm with you always, even to the end of the world, even everywhere, everything. But both of these promises are given in context of making disciples. If we'll be about the mission, God will provide all the power necessary and all the presence necessary. But the central point of that passage is the mission of God. Make disciples. I began this lesson by reading a text from Genesis 7 that I ignored until now. Sunday school classes around the world learned that God sent the animals to Noah and to the ark two by two. Now, now they use video and you know, computer-generated graphics. When I was a kid, we had flannel graphs. If you're not old enough to know what a flannel graph is, get out of here right now. Flannel graph, it was a board with flannel on it, and they had little cut-out pictures, and, and, and they would flannel, stick them to the thing, and you'd walk them over and stick them, and, and you'd have the ark, and then they'd have a little flannel piece with some animals, and they were two-by-two, two, you know, and they, and, you know, that was... High tech, that was, you know, PPH. (laughs) Two by two, the animals were sent. Remember the old song, God told Noah to build him an arky arky of gopher barky barky? Two by two, the animals sent to the ark. But notice the verses I read, Genesis 7, 1 through 3. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and a beast that are not clean by two, the male and his female. You ever see any, you ever see any flannel graphs that ever had sevens? You never did, did you? It was always two by two. Fowls of the air by sevens, the male and his female, to keep seed alive upon the face of the earth. There's a differentiation between clean and unclean. Of the unclean beasts, two by two, but of every clean beast of the fowls of the air by sevens. There were two lions, but seven sheep. Two bears, but seven cows. Why are there two pigs, but seven chickens? Why are there seven cows? Why are there seven goats? Why are there seven sheep? Why did those extra five make it on the ark? When there's only two lions, why are there five extra sheep, five extra cows, five extra ox, five extra doves? What a wonderful blessing to be saved. I bet those extra five sure were glad that they were a sheep and not a, not a pig. But why are they on the ark? Why were they saved from the flood? 
What a wonderful blessing to escape judgment. Well, let's look at Genesis 8. And Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. These extra animals were only on the ark because they were going to be sacrificed. They were food for Noah and his family and they were a sacrifice to God on the altar. The only reason they were saved was because they were worthy to be sacrificed. If they are not sacrificable, they were not savable. They were on the ark because they were part of a mission. So here is the essential element of a disciple-making church. Every single member is on mission. Every single member is part of the mission. I started out by saying that one of the hardest things to do is find the manpower needed to do what gets done. And the only way to make it happen is we have to put in our people a missional aspect. I do not come to church for me. I do not come to church. If you need CPR every single service, what you really need is a heart transplant. Church services are not about me. It's about mission. And so people get burned out because they come to church and it's about them. And if they don't get what they want, they start missing church. But if they come thinking, I'm here to help somebody, to reach somebody, mission becomes the central driving force and it fuels their relationship with God. Brother Snitzer, you talked about a discipleship pathway. The intentional, a, a discipleship pathway is an intentional route, steps, and paths you, to, in your church to develop missionary disciples for kingdom impact. Yes, sir. It's an engine for the effectiveness of mission. George Barna said, discipleship does not happen just because a church exists. It occurs when there is an intentional and deliberate effort to escape spiritual growth. Somewhere I read a statistic, and I tried to find my my citation for it, but somewhere I read a statistic that said that less than 10% of North American Christian churches have a defined discipleship pathway. That means that over 90% of churches have no real designated plan for what happens when somebody comes to church. Therefore, discipleship, if it happens at all, happens by accident. Ed Stetzer, in the state of church planning in the U.S., showed that churches with a clear discipleship pathway grew at nearly double the rate of those that don't. You get what you prepare for. You get what you create capacity for. And so every single member must be on mission. 
the only way I, I would go to church growth conferences and I'd get more frustrated than I did motivated because every time they come up with an idea, I was like, how am I going to get that done? How am I going to find somebody that's to do that? How am I going to get the people that necessary to do that? Now, maybe, maybe, maybe you all don't, you pastors don't feel that way, but, but I, I was like, how, the only way to do it is we've got to build a missional mentality in every member. We have to stress, you're here for somebody else. You're here to reach. It's a missional discipleship. Every member on mission. Be disciples. Make disciples. If I'm not about the mission, then God owes me not one more blessing for the rest of my life. Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you. God, I thank you for the privilege of being involved in mission. God, I thank you because everyone that you send to us, you send to them not just because of grace, but because of purpose. God, whether they may be the worst drug addict in our community, but when you send them, it's not just because you felt sorry for them. It's because they have a purpose in life. Help us, help me, God, as a pastor, help Bethlehem Church to be so missional that when somebody comes, we see them as part of your purpose and part of your mission. God, I pray, help us, Lord Jesus, to train our churches to be missional in mindset. And God, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for the tracks.